I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right, week two of our mini-series on countercultural convictions. Seth, welcome back to your podcast. Thank you for having me on my podcast. Welcome to your podcast as well, Luke. It is great to be here with me and you. Uh, but yeah, we made it two weeks in a row. We're recording again. Uh, wow, we got a real streak going here. A, a hot streak. A yeah, great streak. Yeah. It's pretty great. So uh, what we're doing in this, uh, maybe if you're new to this podcast, what we're doing is uh, some follow-up conversations each week related to the sermons that are being preached at Redemption Church Gateway in this series called Countercultural Conviction. So after the series, we'll probably go to a more irregular uh, schedule for recording. But for now, what we're trying to do is just dig a little bit deeper, uh, talk about some of the thought process that went into the message, uh, some other things. And uh, I actually have some questions prepared uh, specifically to kind of talk with you about. So Seth, you preached on the issue of gender. And, uh, you know, I think maybe when if people heard the title gender, they may have thought about like the kind of roles of men and women or complementarianism versus egalitarianism, that sort of thing. But this was really kind of more about gender identity. And so I'd encourage you, if you didn't get a chance to hear it or listen to it or watch it, uh, please go check it out. I, I, I wasn't actually here on Sunday, um, but got to listen to it and watch it later. And, um, man, I was really encouraged by it. Thanks, Luke. Yeah, thanks for your work. Yeah, it was a fun Sunday to be done with. Which <laughs> I, not that I usually feel like that about Sundays. but You felt, more, some, felt some relief. Yeah, some relief. I think more than typical or far more than I'm used to. I told a couple people on Sunday, I was probably a little more nervous for that sermon than I've been for any sermon in at least three years. Not because I'm like insecure about the content, but feeling like I have nine to 12 hours of stuff to say on this topic based on research and stuff I've looked into and read and discovered and people I've sat with and people I've listened to. And it just felt weird being only able to say 35 to 39, 40 minutes of it. Sure. And that kind of editing process, that kind of, it felt kind of arbitrary deciding what, what points to hit, what points not to hit. And so it kind of feels weird walking away thinking, I'm sure there's a lot of people who listen to the sermon who have thought about this a lot more than me. Maybe not a lot, a lot, but some people who for varieties of reasons, these issues are much closer to home or much more personal. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's other people in the room who, that was the most they've ever thought about that. And so trying sure. to speak to both of those uh, parts of our church family, and trying to pick that, it yeah. just felt very arbitrary to me. Well, there's some ways to get you more than 35 minutes uh, in that. You know, we're having this conversation. Yeah. Uh, you and me and Josh Butler from Redemption Tempe, we had a conversation on the Inside Redemption podcast where we went, I think, for about an hour and a half talking about uh, really through the membership uh article that relates to this issue. So we got to talk about that. And then you're going to also be doing uh, one of the one of the teachings at the Inside Redemption Live event on September 21st. So um, I'm sure there will be some overlaps some things that you kind of say repeated in different uh, places and ways. But I, I think it's actually kind of nice that there's these extra outlets for you to be able to, you know, leverage some of the work you've done on some of the stuff. Yeah, it's been one of the big pros of COVID is we have more infrastructure to yeah. Uh, talk to more people more often yeah the inside redemption night will be sweet i think it's next not this week but next week or the 21st mm-hmm. and i'm doing basically a 40 minute lecture on male and female and then josh butler from the lead pastor of redemption Tempe is doing a lecture on masculine and feminine yeah and so i'm going to do more explicitly on the body and what our bodies tell us about ourselves and god and he's going to do more on the gender roles okay. side of things yeah. and in the way that the trends, both biological and theological, that shape masculinity and femininity. Yeah. Well, uh, it was interesting for me. I was on a camping trip this weekend with uh, my uh, two younger daughters, and uh, I just kind of had this thought Saturday night. I was thinking, you know, this is kind of interesting. Like, this issue of gender identity is obviously a super contentious issue in the culture. So this feels like kind of an important message. I'm not even there for it, and I'm not even worried. Mm. That's and, very kind of you. And that was a really kind of a cool feeling, you know. Um, I mean, this this was one of these things of like going, um, man, you you just I think of our of our preaching team, you're the right guy to give this message. Um I, and actually I remember um 
about a month after we had offered you the job to come uh, be part of Redemption Church Gateway, you were still transitioning off the, the staff at, at Grace Community Church in Tempe, where you were. And you did a sermon in a series that was there on male and female. And so yeah. this is something that you've uh, talked about, thought about, worked on, then obviously your dissertation and all the things that we've done there. But I just feel like, man, what a, what a gift it was to the church and even to me to go, man, here's this like really important issue and just to know it's going to be handled with care. And then I was, uh, I, I don't know, I was especially, I don't know if encouraged or surprised or maybe a little bit of both by kind of the place you started. You started in a place of vulnerability, talking about um, your friend in high school who kind of tried to let you know a little bit of what he was beginning to experience and how you didn't really handle that well. And I thought just starting it from that posture framed the thing as less of like a, here's our line in the sand and more of a, Hey, this issue matters because it relates to how we relate to people. And I just thought that was such a, um, I don't know, that was such a good way of kind of um, modeling what we talked about the week before on how we counter culture that we're, we're not countering culture, you know, trying to fortify against it, trying to accommodate it, trying to dominate it, but we're trying to incarnate. And I thought that was such a great picture of it. So thanks for doing that. Yeah, that wasn't super strategic. I mean, part of it I had really forgotten about. I mean, I haven't forgot about that guy, but I forgot about that encounter or that moment and how trying to get into my own head back and why I butchered that talk so bad. Mm. And part of it had to do with just my own. Why you butchered the conversation with your friend? Yeah, why I butchered yeah. the conversation with my friend. And at the 9 o'clock, which I don't think we posted that one, I kind of surprised myself on how choked up I got. And because mm. I wasn't, you know, wasn't like planning on crying. I don't think that's a healthy thing to do. You know, so, <laughs> But I yeah. surprised myself how choked up I got, mostly just thinking through uh, probably how few experiences he's had with the church since then. Mm. And how a lot of us who have a lot of experiences with the church, if you have a couple of bad ones, they're kind of drowned out in the sea of good ones. But for a lot of people, they only get a couple shots at a good experience of the sure. body of Christ. And just that sadness there, and even just my own both insecurity regarding other people's uncomfortable emotions. Like it takes a level of emotional health to be proximate to other people's discomfort and not just try to get it to end. Yeah. And then also my insecurity about the topic, you know, at least, sure. at least for me, if I have my own kind of perspective or worldview relatively thought through, then I can kind of enter into mess and not feel tossed to and fro. But if I feel a little insecure, then I tend to over project confidence or, and I end up you know, hurting people. And so I would imagine that a lot of people at our church feel similarly that if they got put in a position on the spot to have to interact on stuff, it'd be like a, eh, we have like a gut. Sure. There might be a biblical, a gut that comes from scripture, right? I'm, I know there's male and female, but when it comes to actually saying those words out loud, we tend to feel stupid mm -hmm. because being forced to articulate things for the first time out loud in a high risk conversation mm -hmm. is kind of scary and yeah. feeling secure in that. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. So this was a message that was originally planned for March 15th, 2020. Yeah. Right. You, you had studied it. You'd prepared it. I think you had slides ready to go. I had slides um, ready to go. And, you they know, then they were uploaded to planning center, our online database. Yeah. So you were ready. I mean, this was a sermon that like you had it kind of in the can other than you hadn't delivered it yet. And then this little thing called COVID-19 hit and uh, you ended up talking about, you know, how to not fall off the edge of your roof and uh, how to love one another. Talking about in parapets, a, yeah. In a pandemic. Tighten the head of your axe because yeah. it's flying off. You're, you're liable. Yeah, so, uh, at, you know, your first experience of talking to an empty room, uh, sadly not your last experience. That happened quite a bit. But I'm curious, how did this message change from March 15th to September, whatever it was, uh, 12th or so, I think? Yeah. Uh, yeah, w w how was the message different you know, than you'd originally planned? It's, it's really not that different. I think the main points I talked about, the main, even like back, I mean, it's not that long ago, but 20 months ago, wherever it was, I really, the main point I wanted to make was that Jesus gives us bodies and our bodies are blessings, not curses. Hmm. And that our bodies are not tombs. Our bodies are not prisons, like the Platonists taught. And like certain LGBTQ um, pedagogues teach. So, 
the Bible is a remarkably pro-body religion uh, book, and the Christianity is a remarkably pro-body religion, and the fall really affects the uh, congruity of our bodies with, like, the original design. Like, there is fallenness, there is decay, there is cancer, there is developmental delay, delay, defect. There are psychological and physical conditions, but how, like, the basic structure of our bodies is still fundamentally good Mm. in that part of the goal of the Christian life is not to escape our bodies, but it's to healthily inhabit our bodies and to be foretaste of the resurrection when we'll have new bodies. So maybe the, so so that was all going to be in there last March. Yeah. The basic content still there. That was still there this Sunday. Yeah. The basic content, the Bible text I referenced was was all the same. Probably the personal story is different. Obviously I didn't have a, one and a half year old who pooped in the pool. <laughs> sure. One and a half years ago. So, right. but yeah. the, the, so some of these stories have been different. Illustrations are different. Honestly, I had not even remembered uh, how I hurt my friend in that conversation mm-hmm. a year and a half ago. Yeah. And so if anything, I think I've been more humbled over the past 18 months at just kind of the difficulty of church and even just being proximate to a lot of people's different sufferings. And so it's probably the part that you mentioned was like the most helpful probably wouldn't have been it mm. just cause I, it would have been more, uh, maybe a little distant calculated or academic, Yeah, which wouldn't have been bad. It just would have been worse. Yeah. Well, and I also wondered, like I thought another, one of the more powerful things was the Leviticus 18. You know, we're not trying to be traditionalists or progressives. Yeah. We're trying to listen to what the Lord says. Yeah. And, um, You're right. you and that, I, that was actually totally not even in there. Just, that whole like scripture reading text that was not in my previous. Yeah. That wouldn't have been in there in March. Yeah. That was more of like an introduction. Like that wasn't really the text I preached, but I just, that in particular, like you're, I think this is what you're getting at is the last 18 months is helped me realize how we so often just listen for trigger words and decide whether something is liberal or conservative. And then we either like it or don't like it based on its association with certain trigger words. And so trying at the front end to say like, hey, our goal here is not to be conservative or traditionalist or progressive yeah. liberal. Our goal is to be biblical. Yep. And if I say some trigger words that make you think I'm this or that, that's not like, please don't, over, yeah. please don't read into that what's going on here. So that, that was probably a little more uh, defense on the front end, even sure. just recognizing how much uh, the distance of the last 18 months has made it possible for people to misread or mishear things or overinterpret things. Mm. So another uh, question I had was um, you made a, it seemed like a pretty conscious choice to read from the membership packet, from the article, right? Yeah. You put put the words on the screen and kind of read those specific things. Uh, Why did you decide to do that? The real goal there was clarity. And I want everyone, because I do think that compassion can sometimes uh, fog up clarity, mm-hmm. even though clarity is loving and that part of loving people is to be clear where you can be and when, whenever you can be. And so I think that's one of the things that Jesus shows us is he's like just relentlessly and ruthlessly clear sometimes. And I think when we have the choice of being really clear, I wanted to be able to reference those words and read them and expound on them so that people could even go back and reread them because those are public. Yep. There's not a chance to, um, did he say this? Did he say that? And, and I also wanted to be able to speak from a place of we. Yeah. And so this is a type of sermon where, having united pastors and mm-hmm. elders and shepherding teams. And well, that, I thought that was one of the more powerful parts of it is it was less like, here's what Seth's saying. And it was like, here's what redemption leadership, uh, not just a gateway, but across all 10 congregations, here's what we're saying. And I thought it actually, you know, as I think about some of the messages coming up, I don't know that I had been thinking a lot about reading from the packet, but it made me go, I think I should include that. Yeah. Cause it's just been, like we chose those words on purpose yeah. and they represent us. And so I felt like I had a lot more uh, ability to be courageous, confident, and bold saying thus saith the elders, not sure. just here Seth's rip on something. And I wanted people who maybe feel tension about that or even are tempted to disagree with it to not just say, well, I disagree with Seth, but to have to feel the weight of, I disagree with the entire elder process of redemption church. So it's easier to dismiss one person as like, well, I disagree with that person on this. It's harder to have to come to grips with the fact that you disagree with all the teaching elders across redemption church. Yeah, sure. 
All right. So I want to go in a couple of different directions. I'm curious, you know, you, you obviously did all your work uh, that we've talked about on this podcast related to um, the use of digital technology and how that's affecting Gen Z's view of their bodies. A lot of that touches into issues of transgender and those sorts of things. Um, I'm curious just from your research and just your reflection, why does it seem like this is on the rise? I mean, I'm assuming that people throughout all sorts of eras of history have experienced different kinds of gender dysphoria. I, I think it'd be naive to think, well, that just showed up all of a sudden in the last 20 years. But man, it does seem more common, right? Like we're talking way more with students, um, with mentors of students who are going like, hey, this is stuff that our students are struggling with. Um, I don't know. Do you have any, do you have any hypotheses, any gut flinches, any maybe other things people have said of like, why is this seem like it's just sort of skyrocketing in our awareness of the issue? I think one that we've yet to talk about on this podcast is the absence of transcendence in the secular commonplace marketplace of ideas, Mm. meaning humans have eternity in their hearts as the book of Ecclesiastes. And so people are raised as people, not people, not raised. People are born in the image of God and they have a sense of eternity put in their hearts. I mean, there's this longing and a desire and a recognition that transcendence exists. And when you're steeped and soaked in purely naturalistic secular thinking, there's an absence of transcendence of the eternal of that, which goes beyond the visible And I do think that the decline of religion or the decline of spirituality or the decline of Christianity in the West in general has left this hole and people are searching and grasping for eternality transcendence. And they're finding that transcendence in what a variety of people have called the gender cult. You know, if you think about a cult as something that separates children from their parents, that like gives a whole new lingo and a whole new sense of self. And uh, when you leave a cult, you lose your dignity in the same way that detransitioners are, you know, excluded and exiled from the LGBTQ community. And so there's this entire meta framework of like religious type enlightening, born again, new names, like all of this stuff is very religious at its core. Hmm. And I do think the absence of a connection to Jesus leaves a hole and people are grasping at whatever it is. It's not, it's not totally different than like the, the Woodstock, hippie stuff, you know, people are looking for connection to a bigger community beyond itself. There's a man. And a lot of this, I think you would say is not conscious. No. Like people are not going, Oh, I need some transcendence. Maybe I'll think about being a different gender. It's, it's, it's all kind of operating below the surface. Yeah. I think that's one big piece of it. You know, there was, I met a man on Sunday morning who told me that he used to run the pride parades in downtown Phoenix. Okay. And he just told me about how he was searching to be a part of something bigger than himself. And that the cult of sexuality and the cult of gender was the most obvious choice. There's the most momentum there kind of just Mm. like, you know, the sun start doing good and here's all these Phoenix suns fans all of a sudden, you know, there's, there's bandwagoning right side of history and this goes all the way back to 2000 plus years ago that the sex cults and sexual, like as sexuality is liberation and as religious transcendent experience is not a new thing, but it is a kind of a new thing in the West because we've kind of had at least a form of Christianity slash repressiveness for a while. And now the last 40, 50 years, the sexual liberation has in a sexual so-called liberation has in a variety of ways re-added this sex as, as the means by which we can achieve transcendence and meaning and eternality and, mm. and those type of things. So I think like the, the lack of religious foundation has left a hole and people are religious to their core, even when they believe that they're not, even when they're secular, there are transcending beliefs, axioms that can't be proven. There are fundamental ideas about the way they should, way the world should work. That is a faith-based assumption, you know, and, and so I think that that's a big part of it. One, mm. Two, I think I think being connected to the global community through digital means, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it does in a real way create this. Uh, I have a lot more people to listen to than my parents and ever has happened before in the history of the world. And you have Google and social media algorithms that are feeding you down this kind of spiral of self-reinforcing beliefs. And eventually you kind of find yourself in this corner of the internet that's self-reinforcing and self-attesting and they can't even consider the opposite of possible 
the op- the possible of different or competing worldviews because all the worldviews are just obviously regressive, fundamentalist, and hateful. And so the reinforcing cycle of it mm. is a big part of it. Yeah, it's interesting as you think, like like one of the things that I think about is uh, Tim Keller, who we both have appreciated a lot. He He talks about how, you know, every culture has certain qualities that they say, hey, don't, don't, don't lean into that. And other ones are like, oh yeah, totally lean into that. So he, he kind of says, you know, imagine you've got a 13th century Anglo-Saxon warrior and he has two really strong desires. One is to express his anger through violence and battle. And the other is to wear women's clothes. And then you have a someone in 2021 in New York City who has those same two desires, right? In in the Anglo-Saxon world, it's going to be like, hey, man, be as violent as you want, but don't put on those women's clothes. You know, they'd, say, and, they'd say being violent is natural and wearing yeah. women's clothes is unnatural. Right. And now, and now it'd be the exact opposite. It'd be like, hey, you can't be violent. Like, that's not okay. That's unnatural. But, you know, you be you kind of a thing. And, and so it is an interesting thing to go, you know, we all have desires that some of them are celebrated and some of them are not. And the, the culture we find ourselves in does make a big difference as to which of those we feed uh, and end up becoming kind of our true self. It's a lot of what Leslie Newbigin called, called plausibility structures. Yeah. Meaning that what we consider possible is largely sociologically derived. Uh, meaning the things that we, from our gut, believe, obviously that is false, right? Like if, if you went to certain shamanistic cultures in sub-Saharan Africa, they believe that people have three souls and one of your souls sometimes can be outside of your body. Okay. And everyone in the West is like, that's crap. <laughs> Christian, non-Christian, secular, whatever. Like there's, everyone's like, yeah, no. Right. You don't have three souls and one of them can't live outside your body. That's not, that's not how it is. Whereas to them and their plausibility structures, they're like, yeah, that's totally possible. Whereas Christians and secular people in the West are like, that's not possible. Whereas if we went to them and told them, hey, uh, you actually don't even have a soul. You're just a fizzing bucket of neurons born of chaos. They'd be like, well, you're an idiot. (laughs) So so just... Yeah, that would be as implausible to them as the three souls would be to us. Yeah, whereas one of those things feels plausible to our children and to us... Yep. And it's not the three souls thing. It's the, maybe I am just a fuzzing bucket of neurons, you know? And, yep. and so just recognizing how much sociology and recent history shape what we consider to be possible or plausible and the way that we go about deciding what those things are, we're way more sociologically, historically shaped as a society than we want to admit. And that's part of even the, uh, what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, Yep. right? Where, and, you know, Isaac Newton says, if I've seen far, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. Whereas nowadays, kind of the modern disposition is, if I've seen far, it's because I'm better than everyone who came before me. <laughs> everyone before me is an idiot. And thank right. goodness I'm here to see clearly. And that's that chronological snobbery has really shaped a lot of, at least the modern, postmodern movement, where we're going, everybody before us was definitely just motivated by sex, money, and power. Whereas we now have this... Uh, this latent goodness and this natural openness to love and kindness that we believe that we created out of thin air, which in reality we stole from Christianity and then kicked Christ out of it. And so recognizing that, no, our historical sociological position has made what's possible possible for a lot of us. Yeah. Well, I want to maybe land the plane with some more kind of pastoral like real life questions where the rubber meets the road on this. So the first one, I guess, is if, if, uh, if you had it to do over again with your friend in high school, how would you have approached that conversation? So uh, maybe just refresh us on kind of, he, he brought up, I think the way you shared the story was that he was beginning to take some estrogen and he kind of put that out there as a way of kind of going, Hey, is this safe to talk about? How, how would you have handled that differently now? Well, the first thing, so he tells me, yeah, I've been taking estrogen and when I, take the pills I just I feel more like me I feel more like I I'm in control of my life that's kind of what he said okay and now with my I'm not gonna say mature ears but more mature than when I was 19 year old years going I would see how based on the way his father was based on the way his mother was based on the way their marriage was based on their house was his grasping for control which is 
you know, we tend to hear the word, if I told someone, you know, I'm a high control person. I was talking to my wife last night. We're high control people. <laughs> and I'm and I'm not saying that exclusively negatively, where most people hear negatively, but part of the human call is to subdue and have dominion. You were saying that we as people are high control people or you and Taylor in particular are high control Taylor people? Taylor and I in particular are high control people. Yeah. We're going to Prague and there's a lot we can't control. And I'm trying to say like, look, we're high control people. And yeah. so part of what God is going to do is try to, challenge some of that. Ordinarily, I think that responsibility, subdue, dominion, what has God given to you, have dominion over it. And you could construe that as control, right? So sure. take responsibility. So high responsibility, high control people. Whereas controlling would be controlling what you're not supposed to control. So yeah, trying to as positively as possible say like, there's less we can control on this trip. So let's just try yeah. to begin to emotionally process that before we get yeah. on, get on the 14 hour flight with a one and a half year old. So, <laughs> so hearing him going, I've felt out of control of my life. And instead of just in my heart going like, well, control's an idol. Mm. I would have loved to go like, there's something good in his creative design that wants to take responsibility for the cards he's been dealt, that wants to subdue and have dominion over the spheres that he's been entrusted to. And that includes his body. And so he's felt out of control of his body. And now he's trying to grasp at ways to take control of his body. And he's looking, you know, it's like, I think another thing C.S. Lewis said, which I'm going to quote him on accident again, is whenever a man goes into a brothel, he goes there looking for God. Yeah. Like there's the, the search for transcendence, the search for meaning, the search for connection, the search for control, the search for predictability. Like those are all God-given desires. And basically all sin is us trying to fulfill God-given desires in non-God-blessed ways. And so trying to like, wow, tell me more about how you've been feeling not in control. Yeah. Have you seen that play out in other ways besides thinking through gender? Like, how do you think about that? How does that affect your school? School? How does that affect your, because now what happens is a lot of times gender becomes front and center and it becomes like the single issue thing that people see life through. Whereas trying to help him see like there's a lot going on in your life besides your gender struggle. Right. There's school, there's work, there's church, there's friendships, right? And you obviously bring your gender to all those places. But what are some other ways that you found relief by taking control? Oh, when I do my homework. Oh, cool. Like, that's a great way. You know, so trying to find possible yeah. other outlets. The other thing, too, is I, I would have been able to be way more empathetic. Just going like, hey, man, I've never been tempted to take estrogen pills. Like, when did that, when did that seed get planted? Like yeah. How did that thought first cross your mind? What did you think about that thought when it first came across your mind? Did you think like, no, that's stupid? Did you think, oh, maybe that would help? Did you Google it? Did you ask someone else? Am I, have you talked to anybody else about besides me about this? Yeah. Oh, you talked to Aunt Susie. Well, what did she say? You know, or, or you talked to nobody but me? Wow, you're trusting me with this. Thanks. That feels like a lot. You know, yeah. so trying to just go, being more curious and not being insecure about my convictions, having them, but still being curious while being convicted, I think would be a lot of what I'd want to do. Yeah. The other thing too is like, I just never brought it up to him again. So it was like, this is uncomfortable. I don't really want to deal with this. Yeah. But, but now you would go, Hey man, he really trusted me with, with this. Like yeah. he, he has Eight, some, he months, has some aptitude to talk about it. 18 months later, he moved out of state, uh, to, a much more blue area. And I mean that exclusively politically where there's probably a lot of people who would, uh, fan into flame various forms of yeah. experimentation and process. And, you know, I've since sent him a couple messages like, Hey man, I was a really bad friend to you. And I just want you to know that I know that. And I'm sorry. Mm. I don't have any expectations. And he's like mostly responded with like, yep. Thanks for acknowledging that. Yeah. But there's not been like a, let's grab a beer when you're in town like that. Sure. Which understandably. Yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting now, lesson yeah. is like you, and you kind of made this point on Sunday, but like you, you may not get these chant, like you only get so many pitches. Yeah. And, and especially now listen. that I'm a pastor and I'm obviously like, if you Google my name, that sermon comes up. You know sure. what I mean? And, and uh, like, I hope he, if he listens to that sermon or if he listens to this podcast, you know, the regret that I'm filled with yeah, and he wouldn't just feel used as a illustration. Yeah. Um, 
it is an illustration of my failure, not really an illustration of anything else. Yeah. And so that'd probably be how I'd approach that more okay. and trying to just recognize that, Hey, I can play a long game here. And I don't mean that in terms of like I'm playing chess, but I mean, I want to have this relationship for a long time and I can do that without having to like anxiously land the plane as soon as possible yeah. on topics. Yeah. So uh, another question would be, imagine you're sitting with someone and they're saying, you know, Seth, I really do love Jesus. Like I, I look at Jesus in the Bible and I just, I'm drawn to him. He's amazing. I want to follow him. I want to trust him. I, I believe in him, but I really do feel like I have these, like, here's who I am. And it doesn't align with the stuff you said. And, you know, I believe that Jesus loves me and loves me for me. And I, I love him, but I don't, I don't see it the way you do. How would you help them process things? I'd Assuming there's some level of teachability and, you yeah, know, not connection. like, hey, we're just going to have a fight. But, like, how, how would you help walk them through that? Yeah, part of what I, depending on, like, if they're saying, like, help me see, meaning if they're coming to me as teacher versus, like, if we're just at lunch or something like that. Yeah. One of my goals would be to help them see the way that their views of sex and gender came from somewhere that we tend to view our views as neutral but going, hey, this idea that I can be something besides what my body says that actually comes from somewhere. Let's look where that comes from. Let's go back and look at Plato. Let's go back and look at Judith Butler. Let's look at um, Michel Foucault. Let's look at Freud and the way he sexualized psychology and let's look at the, the triumph of the therapeutic and Philip Reef and let's discuss where your views came from that have been mostly constructed and built from a like the consumption of media and what you've seen in the uh, movies and TV and music and the arts, all these things have created these gut senses. And I just want, I want people to see that their views are not neutral, but they're convicted and religious at their core. And they have just like Christianity has teachers and prophets and, and, uh, and elders. And so also this view has teachers and authors and prophets and, and elders and the aged ones who have shaped generations. And so I try to take them back and do just a history and help them see that the gut view that Americans assume is true about gender and sexuality comes from history. It's not just, it doesn't pop out of nowhere and it's not just the neutral view of humanity. The other thing too is I would try to help them really believe and experience that a Jesus is patient with us. And so there is space to work this out. There is time to wrestle and read and pray. And I'd really try to encourage them to not apply eternal labels or, you know, fixed senses of, uh, well, once I've come out, I can't go back in or mm. just like, Hey, if, so this is one of the things I think I agree with. And there's, um, this, uh, uh, secular feminist lesbian, professor named Dr. I think her name is Diane Diamond. She works for the University of Utah. Okay. And she wrote this whole thing on uh, the fluidity of sexuality and how most, uh, especially uh, women, only about 5% of lesbians are always lesbians okay. over the course of a 30 year period that hmm. they're actually, they're, they're more likely fluctuating and moving targets, meaning sometimes they're attracted to men, sometimes they're attracted to women, sometimes they're, attracted to both. And so with the, her whole argument, and this is a, a secular feminist lesbian and she's married and she's like, I'm the 5%. I'm only attracted to women. But she said 95% of the time, um, most like people who say they're lesbians are actually some type of bisexual or they're straight, but they're just experimenting. Which would be different than males. Yeah, Male homosexuality would be. Males is slightly lower, but it's still not close to zero. Okay. Right. So it's, it's closer. It's in the seventies. I think she argues, but most of her works on women. Yeah. yeah. Same with gender dysphoria, especially in young kids, 80 to up to 88%, sometimes 90, depending on which study you read, talks about how gender dysphoria just tends to go away over time. Hmm. And so this is one of the reasons why this like early intervention, puberty blocking stuff is so detrimental is if you have a condition that there's an 80% chance it will just go away. 
and you're going to take radical semi-permanent slash permanent interventions to make sure that condition stays and doesn't desist. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty bad move. Sure. And so I would just try to tell people like, hey, there is a sense in which sexuality is fluid. Yeah. That our desires and temptations change year to year, uh, decade to decade. And so that's something that sounds like it's a really progressive thing to say, but biblically speaking, our desires are all over the map all the time. Sure. That we're all tempted in a variety of ways to sin creatively. Like we're creative sinners and we're coming up with new ways to sin all the time. And so this idea that we are just a fixed being that's not in flux is just not biblically true because we're always in process. We're always living in history. We're always being tempted by like the demonic forces are always out to get us in new and creative ways. And that's just true. Like there's, there are ways that you will be tempted to sin in five years that you maybe not been tempted to sin yet. And there are ways that you were probably tempted to sin five years ago that right now are not a huge temptation. And that's just true for all people. And that's true when you think about the way neuroscience works. The mm-hmm. brain is plastic. That's called neuroplasticity. It changes over time. Yeah. And so I would encourage them to say, uh, hey, just be slow at saying, hey, I am this and I'm always this. Because that's just not true from a secular biological, neurological lens. And that's just not true from a biblical lens. And so, but Jesus is patient with us. His kindness leads us to repentance. I would encourage them to like, keep reading and praying and being honest yeah, and not go down the confirmation bias rabbit hole. That's going to kind of end up leading to a total deconstruction. I would also just really encourage them to uh, read the Bible. Sure. Like let's okay. You want to love in Jesus. Let's go back to what Jesus says. Let's like, let's look at how he treats women. Look at how he treats men. Look at how he handles gender. Look at how he handles sex. Yeah, I thought your point on Sunday about how Jesus approaches the issue by going back to Genesis was instructive of a kind of way forward. So, yeah, that's good. T- tell me this, uh, you know, there's a kind of, um, I don't know, there's different labels for it, but there's a kind of quote unquote Christianity these days that's in open and affirming related to sexuality and gender issues that kind of wants to treat this as like a, you know, it's just agree to disagree. Like this is kind of a, this is a second or third tier issue. Like there are scholars on both sides who disagree. Yeah. And um, so I guess my question would be, and I appreciate the like, Hey, you're on a journey and things take time and things change. And, you know, but then kind of in a landing at the point at which someone lands, is this an agree to disagree issue as it relates to Christianity, salvation, the kingdom of God, or is this, a bigger deal than that. It's hard for me to speak to salvation. I just feel really slow to judge someone's union with Christ or not (laughs) on that. Yeah. Especially because we get saved having, like we come to Jesus by grace through faith, basically having none of our crap together on anything. And so we get saved having so many erroneous beliefs and then over time God works them out. So, I don't want to speak to salvation, yes or no. I do think that if Jesus is not your Lord, if you're not submitting to him, if you're not actively looking to try to have Jesus be your Lord instead of you being your Lord, then I feel saying, I'm not saying you're not saved, but I don't think you're saved. Yeah, and you should probably not have a great deal of assurance that you're saved. Yeah, yeah. If I'm going to give anybody, like, try to help them be skeptical about whether they're saved or not, it's going to be if they're going like, yeah, I know what God says, and I just disagree. Like, okay, well, that's not a good place to be. Yeah, but but I guess I mean like... like. But when it comes some, to... Like, some people are going like, you know what? Do you pray in tongues? Do you not pray in tongues? Yes. And I think you'd go like, okay, that's not a... That's a thir- yeah. third tier issue. Uh, you know, So what, can, what do you feel confident it, do in? Do you feel that way about this? Or is it like... No, no I do not feel that way about this. This is more of a top tier issue. I would put this very close to a top tier issue slash top tier issue. Mostly because we're talking about the design and structure and function of the whole of creation. And we're talking about a variety of things that God has spoken to very clearly. There are places where scripture is not clear. And I just want to be honest about that. You know, end times is the thousand years literal or non-literal. It feels very debatable and it's been debatable throughout the history of the church for a very long time. Whereas what is male and female? Does God make males and females? How does how do we approach sexual ethics as both in terms of process and direction 
and here's how I do this. There are liberal theologians who want to act like it's not clear. And so even the process of queering, like talk about queers being confused, but so oh man, I, this was such an interesting part of your dissertation. Yeah. So there's this article. If you like, if you could Google it, queers read this, it's a pamphlet that was written and it's talking about the process of queering, meaning adding confusion. Using queer as a, not a noun or an adjective, verb. but a verb. Yeah. It's purposefully introducing confusion to a topic so that people can end up saying something like, well, obviously it's hard. People disagree. So I won't be definitive or clear. Or I'll, so it's, it's eroding at the foundation of people's convictions. Right. And so it's actually an intentional strategy. Yes. This isn't just like, you know, taking a shot at, at folks. Yeah, this who, isn't some traditionalist saying like, you guys are queering on purpose. These are people saying we're queering on purpose. This is part of our social change project. This is part of our strategy. And I think that that thing actually bleeds into the way that the the church can unfortunately approach theology is you have some people write some bogus word studies on like, maybe this word actually means something that nobody's ever thought it meant before. And you're like, Oh, that guy has a doctorate. So maybe he's not an idiot. And maybe because this, this is reality that everyone with a PhD is still a sinner with motivations and biases and yeah. goals. And this even happened at the conference we were at this past week, we're at the, uh, this conference and there's these, a group of people debating LGBTQ issues and the people on the more liberal side were saying like, well, hermeneutics and the difficulty of interpretation and et cetera, et cetera. And the lady, the Harvard sociologist kind of made the point like we're the lady from Harvard who was like a Bible person. Yeah, she was. I was like such a warm surprise. <laughs> she could be a member here. She could be on staff here. She could teach classes here. Like she was yeah. just, just great. And she kind of made the point of, hey, we're talking about hermeneutics and interpretation, but we know this is about authority. Hmm. And so in the name of obfuscating, queering, making what is clear, opaque, waking, making what God has said, obviously going, did God really say? And you end up sounding like Satan and you're introducing confusion to what has been clear. Yeah. And so many of these texts of scripture going from Genesis all the way through Matthew 19 to even the way that God revives the bodies in revelation 21 and he's making all things new. He's not making new things. And it just is such a clear deal that if someone persisted in uh, what I would say is like a, a queer reading of the text. So there's a whole school of queer theologizing. If someone persisted in that, I would have a hard time, not impugning their motive as just trying to give a license to sin rather than trying to actually submit to the scriptures. And so, especially here at the church, um, it's just not an open-handed issue as it relates to discipleship, certainly not in leadership, certainly not in deal. So if someone's attending the church and they're wrestling, like that's great, people can wrestle. But if you want to move into leadership or become a member, this is not really a third-tier issue. This is not agree to disagree issue. Yeah. And, and I would just encourage people that framing it as agree to disagree is part of the querying process and it's part of the goal, even like within our surge network, which has a variety of churches from a variety of backgrounds who are all over the place on a variety of things, whether it's tongues end times, women pastors or not, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down the line. But there's still like a, Hey, we all disagree on a bunch of stuff, but we don't disagree on this LGBTQ stuff. And so that kind of creational design of male and female, that Genesis one foundational document, mm -hmm. the charter of the whole of creation uh, does not belong in the yeah. third tier. I would say it doesn't even belong in the second tier. Yeah. What we might debate about is like the specific approaches you might take in yes. ministering or engaging or those sorts of things. But the core conviction that God made us male and female and that that kind of settles the issue. We're not going to debate about that. But so let's go to um, kind of one last thing that maybe there is a little bit more room of, of disagreement with is is talk about how how you think the issue of through the issue of pronouns. You and I have talked about this. I think we talked about it on the Inside Redemption podcast. But assuming not everyone is going to listen to that, um, yeah. How do you think about that? I think that's a place where people are starting to bump up against this, especially in the workplace, being asked to declare their pronouns or being asked to use. Uh, pronouns for somebody that's, you know, 
trying to live in a gender that's not matching their uh, sex at birth. Um, how do you process through that? It seems like maybe maybe you can make a case for kind of rejecting the whole thing and saying, nope, I'm going to live in line with reality. And I think you could also make a case for going, you know what, uh, to love my neighbor well here, I'm going to accommodate in this or that. Or is that, how do you how do you think that through? I go really back and forth based on context. I mean, context matters a ton. I do think one of the things I put in the recommended resources that we sent out was this podcast on rapid onset gender dysphoria. That was an interview of three moms whose kids kind of out of the blue came out as trans or something like that. And they make a pretty persuasive case that you should not, you should refer to your children as their biological pronouns or somehow try to avoid using their, their, their pronouns. I'm speaking in the second person, you, you know, as at least until your kid's 25 and how just the reality that your brain's not really developed until you're 23 to 25 anyway. And how would they say the same thing about the person's name? Yeah. They refuse to use their made up recent name. Okay. They would use initials or they'd say, Hey you. Um, but they felt like when it comes to parenting children who are confused or who are dysphoric or who are wrestling, that going along with the gender cult and buying into the language actually makes it harder to walk back something mm. later on. Okay. And you're actually participating in normalizing something that is demonic and evil in your children. And so I would, when it comes to like parenting your kids who are wrestling or not wrestling, I do think there has to be, there's a different level of insistence that I think parents have to maintain. And so I'd recommend listening to some of that. And I just think that, Part of the deal is like, yeah, because you have a responsibility for your kids. Yeah, there's responsibility, which is different than if you're a 46 year old person at work and you're interacting with another, you know, adult who's yeah, saying, same, "Here's how I'm." Yeah, the same way you'd say, "Hey, my house, my rules, no heroin." You say, "My house, my rules, no, no puberty blockers." Yeah, you know, my house, my rules, no. Yeah, saying your name is Susie when it's actually Steve. You know, hey, yeah. my, and so right. you're you're trying to create safe environments for your children where they can flourish. And yep. a lot of this kind of disembodied antibody ideologies actually don't create flourishing and all the data shows it makes it worse. And especially if there's a gigantic percentage chance that's just going to go away over time in the way it's comorbid so often with just suffering trauma, autism, a variety of mental issues. Uh, you're just, it looks like, I think it's more parental abdication to just go along with preferred pronouns. So there's that environment. Second environment would be like in acting or working with totally non-Christian people. This is, I think, part of the First Corinthians 5 text that um, Paul talks about. Hey, if you went about burning bridges with everyone who disagreed with us on sexual ethics, you'd have no connection to the world right. anywhere ever. And so he basically says, like, I'm really concerned about the church and what the church does, and I trust God to judge those who are outside. And so, especially now the way that language works in our secular culture is people's pronouns no longer refer to their biological sense, but they pronouns are referring to how people understand themselves, right? They're identifying. So when you talk, talk, talk to someone who in their he, what you're saying is not, I'm acknowledging that you're biological male. What you're saying is I'm acknowledging that you identify as a man. And so the reference point of the pronouns has changed sociologically, which I think is a huge problem and bad but that's just the way our, our language functions now. Yeah. Even when it comes to like the they versus he, she thing, the, the neutral they, like English has changed over time. Like there is just this reality that we used to say thou and you, and thou was individual and you is plural, mm. but the thou has gone away. And now we have a, a generic you that does make it unclear. Is the you y'all or is the you, you an individual? And so going that same direction with they is just congruent with how English has changed over time unless you're LDS reading the King James and talking about thines and thous. So language has just changed over time and trying to acknowledge that and whether it changes for the it, better. It's frustrating though. It's so really on the day one. I mean, I've, I've read some articles where I just get so confused and maybe it, it's that querying that you were talking about, but it's like, good night. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to think like maybe like that's how it was when we switched from thou and you to just you. Like that's interesting. Yeah, so just trying to acknowledge language changes over time. It doesn't always change for the better, but it's always sociological related. 
And when Christians are acting with non-Christians, we just have to recognize context. I go back and forth on saying I'm not going to be complicit in lying about he calling someone a he who's not. Yeah. But if I, I can rationalize it in my mind saying, well, when I'm calling them he, I'm not saying that you have X, Y. I'm saying that you identify as masculine in your heart. Yeah. Which I think is shouldn't be a thing, but it is a thing. And so just trying to go, how do I go yeah. about engaging with non-Christians? I think that leading with incarnation and respect and eventually kind of being able in relationship to disclose convictions is part of that. And that's actually one of the things in our membership packet, we footnote it and we say there's room for, we link to two articles, mm-hmm. one that argues for never use preferred pronouns, one that argues for here's some situations in which one might use preferred pronouns especially in the workplaces and a variety of HR settings, I do think there is a, um, it's easy to make a point. It's hard to make a difference and trying to think through what's the best way to make a difference, not just make a point. Yeah. And I remember you, you've talked and I don't know if it was Alan Jacobs or, or another philosopher who basically said like a lot of our use of language is really just us trying to say which group we belong to. Yeah. It's just signaling. Was it Alan Jacobs? Yes. His okay. book, how to think is really great. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that's some of the pressure that a lot of Christians feel is we feel like I need to declare that I'm against this approach to reality. And, um, and that kind of tends to trump the missional engagement with an individual or with a relationship. Um, and yet I think you can make a strong case for both depending on the situation. So. I do think Christians need to buckle up and realize that they're going to probably lose jobs over this stuff Yeah, at some point. I don't think that, I said, I don't plan on me losing a job. I might, you know, it may be a deal where like the church becomes so taxed or persecuted or ever, where we only get to do this part time rather than full time. Um, and I'll get a job somewhere else that would be on the line. Yeah. But this is, there is a, a cultist, religious, totalitarian nature to a lot of this stuff. And just, I'm not saying that to just moan and complain and saying like, dang, those lives. I'm just going like, hey, we got to buckle up and be ready that. This is just like this is not an agree to agree, agree to disagree issue for us. It's also not for the secular world. Yeah, that's interesting. And from their worldview, from their perspective, we are doing violence and causing suicides. Right. And if I believe that about someone else, I would say we need to get them out of here. Sure. But that's what they really believe about us. I don't think it's true. We're being misunderstood in the way that Jesus misunderstood. But going, hey, if I try to like get inside their, in between their ears, Yep. And C, going like, okay, well, we're oppressive, we're doing violence, we're creating suicidality, uh, we're social contagions in, their, in some of those perspectives and just trying to acknowledge that's what we're dealing with. And if we love our jobs and our money more than we love the mission of God and the kingdom, then that's going to get shown to be reality. Yeah. Well, um, this has been a little bit of an opportunity to go deeper. And so I appreciate the conversation and I appreciate y'all listening. If this is helpful for folks uh, that, you know, uh, go ahead and share it with them. And, uh, our hope is to be back next week. Uh, this Sunday I'm preaching on sex and sexuality, and, uh, we'll talk more about uh, that in a follow-up conversation next week. Um, but for now, uh, Seth, thanks for your work. Yeah, it's a treasure, uh, I was going to say privilege and treasure, so I said blue. <laughs> it's a pleasure and a treasure. Well, that's it for the King and Culture podcast. Thanks for stopping by. We'll see you next time. <laughs>